This is Isaiah 52. It says, Awake, awake, Zion. Clothe yourself with strength. Put on your garments of splendor, Jerusalem, the holy city. The uncircumcised and defiled will not enter you again. Shake off your dust. Rise up. Sit enthroned, Jerusalem. Free yourself from the chains on your neck, daughter Zion, now a captive. For this is what the Lord says. You were sold for nothing, and without money you will be redeemed. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. At first my people went down to Egypt to live. Lately Assyria has oppressed them. And now, what do I have here, declares the Lord. For my people have been taken away for nothing, and those who rule them mock, declares the Lord. And all day long my name is constantly blasphemed. Therefore my people will know my name. Therefore in that day they will know that it is I who foretold it. Yes, it is I. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing. Come out from it and be pure, you who carry the articles of the Lord's house. But you will not leave in haste or go in flight, for the Lord will go before you. The God of Israel will be your rear guard. This is where we left off. As you well know, we're doing a series in Isaiah 40 through 55. We have been traveling through those chapters, and we're now nearing the end. I believe there's three left. So we're nearing the finish line. And this is where we left off. God is getting ready to do something great, something that the poet has been talking about since Isaiah 40. Remember, there's that shift from Isaiah 39 to 40 where it's like a span of 100 plus years is gone. Israel is now in Babylonian captivity. They're dealing with all the things that come along with that. They've seen, actually this group hasn't seen, they've heard stories of what used to be. Stories of old about where we used to live, about the promises that God used to be making good on back in the day, but now for them, all they see is foreign gods, a culture that has war to its name, that sees power in the gods of other people, and they're left in this moment of doubt and confusion and that ever-present question of, does God care for us and love us in the midst of all of this? something that God is going to do, and this is something about which the people still needed to be convinced. You can see throughout all this text, and again, it becomes repetitive. It's just Israel has this moment of doubt, this dilemma that they're trying to figure out who God is and how God cares for his people. Last week, we looked specifically at Isaiah 51, verses 17 through 23. It kind of ended that chapter, and it began with the same verbs that this chapter opens with, awake, awake, Jerusalem, although in that text, it was a very negative picture of what was happening. Awake, awake, because you have drunk the cup of God's wrath. You have taken on that mantle of suffering and shame and judgment for your sins. Not only that, but you have suffered a double calamity. The image there of Jerusalem as the abandoned wife, as the slave that has been abused. They've uh, been in this moment of suffering and and calamity for quite some time. They were tormented, they were bereaved, they were abused. 
they were abandoned. Now, as we turn the corner into Isaiah 52, we see the same sorts of things. Awake, awake, Jerusalem, but the images are positive. Clothe yourself with strength. Release the chains that surround your neck. Come out from bondage. Spread the news. You are delivered. How beautiful are the feet of those who spread the, that good news, that good news that God is doing something, the, the news that your God reigns, hearkening back to Isaiah 40. You can almost see this text as a book ends to the first major section of Isaiah 40 through 55. This big, long argument that the poet has been mounting from chapter 40 up to this point now. And as we see when we turn the corner next week and get to those beautiful servant songs that you guys probably know quite well, this is like the culmination of this argument that God is with you, that God cares about you, that God wants to comfort you, and God wants to grant you peace, even in the midst of all of your mess. The message is this. It's time to go home. It's time to remove yourselves from the hospital rooms, the graveside services, from the living rooms that are filled with arguments and fighting. It's time to go home. It's time to move on from those moments of crisis and difficulty and suffering and potential abandonment. It's time to go home. Prepare yourself because it's really happening. We've been talking about this for the last, we've been talking about this for the last 23 weeks. But up to this point, it's been rhetoric. It's been words. It's been God keeps saying he's going to do something. But now it finally turns the corner. He says, it's happening. Get ready because I'm taking you back home where you need to be. For a broken, doubting people, this message is life. This message is hope. This message ultimately is gospel. This is what the Bible is all about. This is what God is all about trying to restore and reestablish these relationships with the broken and suffering people. And we'll see how that plays out uh, in this text. I have basically three main sections. I don't think this is going to take a long time, although I think I say that every week, and it ranges anywhere from 20 minutes to 32 minutes. But this is the first section there. Awake, awake, Zion. Clothe yourself. Put on your garments. Shake off the dust. Rise up. Sit in throne. Free yourself. You can see here that in this very beginning, it's bringing out these imperatives, these commands, this language of Israel to do something. Now is the time. Wake up! It's like when I walk into, I'm so thankful I don't have a first period class anymore, but that first period class is always the worst class in a high school teacher's life because the students are in comas. So we see all these imperatives where they're wanting Israel to, to wake up and understand that something is about to change here. One scholar, Walter Brueggemann, says, the inference from this text is that exilic Israel, the people that had been in exile, had become dulled, inattentive, hopeless, and grief-stricken in exile. These verses consist of seven imperatives, all of which are urging Israel to reject the exilic status and attitude with all of its grief and despair, and so to be ready for departure in joy and vitality. The situation that these people had been in had created something of a callousness in their life where they were dulled to anything that God could do, inattentive to anything that God was doing, without hope of anything that God would do in the future. What about us? It's usually illegitimate to take the Bible, especially from the Old Testament, and just rip it out of its context and immediately apply it to ourselves. But I see so many overlaps between this group in exile and us for whatever reason. Some of us have really great reasons for being dulled, inattentive, hopeless, and grief-stricken. Some of us are walking in exiles that I can only imagine what it feels like. Pain and doubt and difficulty that I can only imagine and have no sort of real-life experience about what that looks like. 
my family has been relatively free of death. We have been relatively free of huge issues. For some of you, though, this is where you live. You've seen hurt. You've seen pain. You've seen people abandon you, forsake you, screw you over, and you become dull and inattentive and grief-stricken, hopeless. Sometimes this happens in the midst of our exiles, those moments where we are uh, suffering. Sometimes it happens in the midst of our doubt. Sometimes we have been doubting for so long that it just becomes part of who we are. It becomes part of that inner skeptic that says, that's a bunch of junk because I've never seen that work out in life. Even for Christians, we begin to say those things because and we sit in this room and we talk about the power of God, but then when we leave this place, we don't see it, we don't experience it, we don't feel it, we don't believe that it has any sort of tangible connection with who we are as a people. We also see at times this happens in the midst of our culture. We live in a culture that, that hangs out right there. We live in a culture that's dominated by science and reason and rationality, and those things are great, well and good, but it's almost as though it's, it's training us to not think that God can show up because there is no supernatural. There is no infinite. There's only finite, tangible things. We also are in the midst of this, this busyness. I don't know if this relates to you guys. I think I know you pretty well, and I can imagine that this is where we are. We live in a world of busyness. We go from the classroom to the job to the boyfriend or girlfriend or back home. We go to ministries and other things that we're doing volunteer-wise, and then we go to sleep, we wake up, and we do it all over again. And in the midst of that busyness, we have become zombified, not in the cool, walking dead sort of way, but in the, oh, I'm just trying to make, like that kind of way. <laughs> or it's like we just kind of exist. All of these things factor into how we view what God is even able to do. I'm going to go somewhere with this sermon, and I've been struggling, like I've been thinking about how to tie this in all day, but you know, once you load the slides in there, you just got to go with it. So imagine if you would a family, a family um, that just has brought in a newborn baby into their midst, a family like mine in a couple of months, seven weeks, seven weeks, Ooh, okay, you'll be okay. Imagine in that family, we see love, we see graciousness, we see people interacting, and we just see, in some real way, the gospel being lived out. But imagine also having that jeopardized for just a moment. Before we get there, though, I want to show you these pictures. I saw an article this past week about this mom who's got a blog, and she just took all these pictures of her kid because that's her kid there. And that's their seven-week-old pup named Theo. I have always said that if I got a dog, which we did, that I wanted to name him Theo Huxtable. It didn't happen. But kudos to these people. I don't know if the Cosbys was an influence here, but Theo is the name of the dog. They were trying to crate train the puppy, and this puppy would always just want to run up and sleep with baby Bo. So she loaded up all these pictures. I'm just trying to work on the cute factor here for a moment. Like... Each day when Bo would go for a nap, Theo would waddle up there and jump into the bed and, and hang out. Imagine for a moment that these pictures are indicative of, of happiness. Imagine that the images on the screen actually hold truth in these people love each other and they care for each other and they're committed to one another. If you don't have a child, as many of us don't, some of us have dogs, and even that picture of the dog just makes me, like, melt. 
because I think about Porter. I, no lie, I was upstairs working on the sermon. I had these pictures loaded up, and Ke- Porter was downstairs in his kennel. I was thinking, I got to go let Porter out and just love on that guy for a moment, you know? But, like, just imagine that this is indicative of, of everything that we've ever wanted. But then think for a moment about how sometimes those things are jeopardized by health, by relationship fractures, by disagreements, by um, difficulties with finances, by all these sorts of things that cause us to wonder if God is in control and if God really cares about who we are. When I think about these pictures, it takes me to, um, to this text in Mark that I think in a, in a very real way kind of demonstrates this. This is Mark 5, beginning in verse 21. It says, When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, saying, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. Jairus was confronted with one of those exile-type moments, the make-or-break type moments in life where his little girl was sick and dying. And in Jairus' wisdom, the best thing that he could do is go find Jesus to see what, what would happen. Meanwhile, and I love how Mark does this, the other gospel authors do this as well, it says a large crowd followed him and pressed around him, and a woman who was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, 12 years, 12 years, understand the context of this too, that would make her isolated and alone, not pure, outside of the camp, so to speak. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in a crowd and touched his cloak. This woman had an exile-type moment that had lasted for 12 years. And instead of her response being one of inattentiveness and dullness and callousness and grief-strickenness, she finds Jesus. Because she thinks, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus also realized something. He realized that power had gone out from him. What in the world does that mean? Isn't that ridiculous? Dude's just like walking around. Wait a second. Um, Yeah, he's British. (laughs) Power has gone out from me. To which the disciples say, I don't know what you're talking about, but of course people are touching you because they're everywhere. They're all over the place. You're a popular guy. People want to be around you. Jesus says, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask who touched me. But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, and told, her, told him the truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. In this woman's moment of exile, she seeks Jesus and finds him. In the midst of what could have produced callousness, jadedness, doubt, pessimism, skepticism, just giving up, she seeks out Christ just to touch his garments. Back to Jairus. While Jesus was still speaking, some of the men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler, saying, your daughter is dead. They said, why bother the teacher anymore? These guys are sensitive. They have a good bedside manner. Hey, your kid's dead. Just don't even bother. Let's just go. You know, sorry. Sorry about your luck. Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid. Just believe. 
imagine the moment of exile for Jairus has just dramatically increased. Not only is his daughter sick, now she's dead, and he's faced with this decision to trust the guy Jesus or to do what most of us would do, break down, weep, give up, give in to cynicism and doubt. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the house of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. The people also, who have great bedside manner, begin to laugh. That's a good one, Jesus. She actually is dead. We saw her. Stop playing around. After he put all of them out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him, went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and walked around. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to tell anyone about this and told them to give her something to eat. That would be nice. The image is one of this that's been jeopardized by the realities of life that have induced suffering and pain and doubt. And Jesus, the king of all creation, walks in to someone that's dead and says, it's time to get up. And she gets up. I am not a dad yet, but I wonder just how this plays out because Jesus also wasn't a dad, but he just goes into the room as father. And almost like you can envision it, just a little a light touch on the back saying, it's time to get up. You're not dead. Let's start the day. In the moment of that exile, that suffering, that pain, that, that destruction, that potential disaster where Jairus could have given up and given into inattentiveness and dullness and callousness, he didn't. He followed Jesus and trusted him, and Jesus did something great. Do we even allow the option anymore for God to do things in our lives? Or have the moments of exile caused us to be ones who have just given up? Second section of this text, we see another moment of remembering. God says, you were sold for nothing, and without money you will be redeemed. At first, my people went down to Egypt to live. Lately, Assyria has oppressed them. When we think about Egypt, some of you might think about this. That's Charlton Heston. I've never seen the movie Ten Commandments. I apologize for that. It makes me a bad Christian, I would assume, and a bad American. When we think about the Exodus, you might have these images. You know the story. Israel is down in Egypt in oppression. They went there to get food because there was a famine in the land. It all worked out well while Joseph was alive. But when Joseph died, the Pharaoh did not know and did not care and put them to the task. Some of us might have this image. And you can see all the sea creatures here. We've got the octopus a dolphin here, and shark. Looks like a shark to me, a stingray. I did some background research on this via Wikipedia. Uh, interesting fact, the Red Sea has 1,200 species of sea creatures, very diverse. I don't know if any of these live there, but just something to, to think about. But again, a lot of us have these images of this, and we've kind of cartoonified the exodus into, oh yeah, of course that happens, but when you actually think about your own life, there's no sense in which the God of the exodus can bring you out of exile into, into life, can bring you out of suffering into life. This is a picture of an Assyrian siege engine. In the 8th century, stay with me here. <laughs> I know my voice tonight is very like, it's very soothing. It's very Bob Ross-ish. 
any Bob Ross fans in the, in the house tonight? Does anyone know who Bob Ross is? He's that painter on PBS with the huge afro who would just take a little brush stroke and say, let's just uh, put a happy little squirrel here in the tree. And then he'd like try to draw a big tree in the foreground of the painting and totally screw up the whole thing. You'd be like, no, Bob Ross, don't do that. Don't put that big mark there. Don't try to draw a tree. It's going to look terrible, Bob Ross. Well, it actually looks pretty good. I think Bob Ross knows what he's doing. Okay, but stay with me. We'll, now back from Bob Ross back to siege, siege warfare in the 8th century. Okay. So it's, the text also says not only were you oppressed by Egypt uh, during the, the time of the Exodus, but you have also been oppressed more recently by Assyria. Assyria was a huge empire in the 8th century, and they were taking Israel to task. They actually destroyed Israel in the north, and they were threatening to destroy Judah in the south as well. I want to read you a text here. Um, this is in Isaiah 36, in the same book that, that we're looking at. And basically what happens is a field commander from the Assyrian army shows up and begins talking to the people, because in siege warfare what happens is this. A town with high walls, usually on a city, would feel safe and secure. However, if they were surrounded by folks, they would be confined to the insides of that city. What the siege engine would do is they would take all these piles of rocks and dirt and things and make a ramp up to the city, and the siege engine would show up and start just battering the wall. And once they opened up a hole in the wall, people would just flood in there and completely demolish the city. And this is what's happening in this text. After the, the field commander talks to these folks, basically saying, don't trust Hezekiah, don't trust your God, you guys are destined to die. It says, Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the field commander, please speak to your servants in Aramaic since we understand it. Don't speak in Hebrew in the hearing of the people on the wall. What's happening here is the people of the town are on the wall listening to the field commander speaking to them. Aramaic is the language of the political elite. And these guys are saying, um, don't let everybody know what you're about to do, but just talk to us. And this is how they, they respond. The commander replied, Was it only to your master and you that my master sent me to say these things and not to the men sitting on the wall who, like you, will eat their own filth and drink their own urine? Assyria had been one that is threatening to destroy Israel and Judah, to not give them an out to completely demolish them. And as God is looking back over this history, he's talking about Egypt and the suffering and oppression that happened there and Assyria who has been oppressing these people. And then ultimately, though he doesn't say it, Babylon who has also been oppressing and bringing about suffering to these people. And he says this, and now what do I have here? The Hebrew is a little bit strange. Another translation could be, and now what am I doing here? This is God talking. Another potential translation could be, and now, what was I doing here? So as God is reviewing all these things that have happened in history, he begins to say, what's happening? What am I doing? Why, in a sense, am I not acting for these people? The image of God in this set of texts is God becomes aware of the people's situation. He's cognizant that something must be done. He says, therefore, my people will know my name. Therefore, it is that day they will know that it is I who foretold it. Yes, it is I. This is God saying, enough is enough. The time of exile is over. These last 
12 chapters where I've been talking about comfort. It's happening. I'm doing it. We can stop talking about it, and actually you guys can see what this is going to look like. What am I doing here is what he says. And we could ask this question of us. Do we believe that this is true for us? And, and around the room, we're all going through different types of, of moments in our lives where we're needing God to show up and to do something. And the message that we get from Isaiah is that that's going to happen. In verse 7, it says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. This is like a battle scene where back in the day, they didn't have smartphones. They didn't have the interwebs. They didn't even have a postal service. They had folks that were fast that could hang out by a battle. And when news of the battle would hit, that person would take off running. They would hit the post and say, this is happening. Go tell these people. And then somebody else would take off running. It was like the early version of a 4 by 400 except a lot longer probably. But they're saying, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. The news is, our God is winning. Our God is reigning. Our God is blowing up this exile and this moment of suffering and oppression, and he's answering the call. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices together. They shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they're going to see it with their own eyes. All the talk that we've been laying out there, it's going to happen. Not only is it going to happen, but they are going to see it. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. Understand, that's the bookend right there, because in, in chapter 40 it said, comfort my people, comfort, it's happening, it's coming. And here in chapter 52 it says, the Lord has comforted his people. He will comfort his people. This is Israel's gospel. Your God is king, your God has won, your God has comforted his people. This is our gospel our God is still king. In the midst of the things that you go through, in the midst of the difficulties you have at home, at work, at school, in relationships, wherever you are, our God is still king. He has won, ultimately, the victory, and he still offers comfort to his people. That comfort comes in the form of Jesus, his son, his death and his glorious resurrection. I'm not trying to spin you a story where every problem that you have is going to go away. I'm not trying to spin you a story where every health issue that you have will be healed. I'm not trying to tell you that every relationship that you have will be restored. I'm not trying to tell you that every difficulty you have in life will go away. But I'm trying to tell you that God, in the same way of the Exodus, bringing people out of oppression into his promised land, in the same way that we see reminiscences of the exile in the 6th century where people have been oppressed and have been suffering, and God says, it's time for you to go home. Little girl, it's time for you to wake up. You're not dead anymore. In the same way that God still has a message for us today, a message of hope, a message of peace, a message of security, a message not of negativity and doubt and cynicism and pessimism, but a message that breaks through those moments in your life that breaks through the exiles, whatever they are, to offer you a different and a better way. A way of love, a way of mercy, a way of hope, a way of peace. My prayer and my hope is not only that we get on board with that as individuals, but that we exemplify that to the people around us as they sit in the middle of their existential crises, their exile moments of suffering and doubt and difficulty that we can be the messengers with 
beautiful feet who tell of the gospel, who tell of God's great love and his care and his compassion. They can proclaim not only to the people next to us, but to this community and to this world that God is still king, that God still cares, that God is still invested in you, and that the things that we have been waiting for so long to see happen just might happen. Break through the inattentiveness, the dullness, the moments of grief-strickenness, and find hope and peace in the person and work of Jesus Christ.